All right, so we are back in our confession of faith. We are looking at chapter 8 now. So turn to chapter 8 with me. And chapter 8 is dealing with of Christ the mediator. As we have been talking through the confession, we have been displaying and, and seeing how it builds upon itself. It started with of the Holy Scriptures, because what we believe about the Scriptures, um, we want to put forth in everything, because that's going to say what we believe about the rest of everything else, because it's from the Scriptures that we derive these different doctrines that we see. So we studied in chapter 1 what we believe about the Scriptures. Some of that actually is going to be, um, we're going to hear a little bit about that in the sermon today, as far as how the Scriptures have came, as far as them being God-breathed. Um, we also see in chapter 2, the, de- the next thing would be doctrine of God. Who is God? What do we believe about God? What do we believe the scriptures teach about him? And uh, naturally then that flowed from there uh, of creation. So you can see there's kind of like a timetable that we're following. God exists before any kind of creation. And then in, um, in, uh, after doctrine of God, we deal with his decree. His decree is his plan, his um, before time that he created all things. He, cre- he plans the redemption. He plans to create. He plans everything that's going to ever happen in redemptive history. Chapter 4 is then his creation. He's putting his plan into time and space. So we see creation then take place. Once creation has been uh, made, well, how does he maintain his creation? Well, it's through divine providence. So we had our chapter of divine providence and how God governs and sustains all things. Chapter 6 then led us to the fall. So we saw the problem with the human race is now that we, because of the fall, we come into this world corrupt by nature. We are sinners. We have a representative, uh, Adam, who uh, represented us all. And now we have uh, this corruption that needs to be redeemed. So chapter 7 then brought us into how does God redeem? How does God then reverse the effects of the fall, if you will? And it's through God's covenant, primarily God's covenant of grace that we see that he does that. We saw that there's numerous covenants that we look through. We saw the covenant of redemption, which we're going to touch about a little bit about today. We saw the covenant of works that God demands absolute, perfect, perpetual obedience and rewards life upon uh, obedience thereof. That's paragraph one. Uh, chapter Paragraph two in chapter seven told us about the fall and the consequences of the fall. We now are now under the curse of the law. So then it provided the need for Christ uh, to come in light of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is the covenant by which God uh, brings about the forgiveness of all sins for all who have faith in Christ Jesus. In paragraph three, then, we saw how that's progressively revealed, and it's through farther steps. So we went through probably eight weeks of just looking at that farther steps and understanding the different covenants and how they reveal the covenant of grace. This brings us to then, who is that mediator of the covenant of grace? Well, it's Christ. He is the mediator. So that's chapter eight. So chapter eight actually... Um, here is going to deal with 10 paragraphs. And there's two main topics that we see in chapter 8. It's going to deal with Christ and his person, but then also Christ and his work. So these are the two main topics we're going to see in this paragraph. And in paragraph 1, it's dealing with Christ, 
his person and what he was assigned and everything. So we can see paragraph 2, 3, 5, and 9 deal with Christ's person. Paragraphs 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10 deal primarily with his work that he will achieve. So let's look at paragraph 1. And I want you to notice paragraph 1 looks backwards, but it also looks forwards. So let's read paragraph 1 of chapter 8. It says, It pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Okay, so here we have uh, the intersections of pactum, which we call covenant, but we also see the historia salutis and ordo salutis. Historia salutis, remember, is the, is the history of salvation. What has God done? How does he redeem in time and space? But then the order of salvation per, uh, actually deals with the order for someone specific individual. What process does he go? And we see that towards the end of the paragraph where it talks about called, justified, sanctified. So here we have an intersection between the historia salutis, the history of salvation, and the order of salvation. Notice also, too, um, the basis upon which the doctrine of Christ is built is built around covenantal language. Uh, Notice it's pactum language, covenantal language here. Um, And this comes primarily from the Savoy Declaration. So uh, the Baptists just uh, looked at how the Savoy Declaration uh, talked about these things and wanted to emphasize those same things as well. Um, and so notice it's, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, um, Here we have an explicit connection between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. So it's, it's meant to just flow, and it's in light of its covenantal context. So notice it's speaking of a covenant here. Right? Chapter 8 is the, meant to be the expansion of chapter 7. It's focusing on now who is that servant? Who is that mediator of the covenant of grace? And we see it's going to be revealed through, you know, progressively revealed by farther steps. We're going to see shadows and types and promises that ultimately are fulfilled when Christ comes. Okay? And so it's connecting these things. So now Christ has come. Who is he? Let's learn about him as the mediator here. So Christ the mediator. Notice it starts off first. Um, it's talking about God the Father. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. Okay, so if we were talking about, notice it says according to the covenant made between them both. What covenant is that? Covenant of redemption, right. So covenant redemption is the inter-Trinitarian covenant made b- b- between the Godheads, the Godhead, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to bring about the redemption of the elect. It was, remember, an eternal covenant that was before time, before the creation of the world. Uh, this was a covenant in which they came together to 
bring about the salvation, all for their glory. This is why it says it pleased God. This was a pleasing thing for him to do. It gave him glory. It gave him praise. And it shows the the amount of love between the Godhead as well. Notice, in his eternal purpose. So this eternal purpose is, is just speaking about, look, this is... This is this eternal covenant. And in this, the Father appoints according to this covenant. So it's covenant redemption here. And we see language like this in Titus 1, verse 2. It says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Right? It's a reference to that covenant redemption where he promised uh, the Son a people. And he commissioned the Son then to go and redeem them. The Son agrees. The Holy Spirit is also involved in that whole process and that he accompanies the Son, empowers the Son, is with the Son. Um, and then when the Son achieves the benefits, what does the Holy Spirit do? It, he applies the benefits to the elect. He's, he's um, securing them. He's, in, he's giving them uh, the ability to fulfill and obey the commands now. So the Trini- Trinity is involved in our salvation. And this is what we see here in the forefront. Um, Christ, though, is emphasized as the central figure, mainly because he is the redeemer of it. He's the one by by whom uh, sheds his blood for those elect. Um, But it's the Father, ultimately, who chose him and ordained him to this task. Okay. Now, when we read this, we can maybe think, there could be problems in the way we, we read at times, and maybe and this is more because of our human kind of problems. We can read it as if um, we can say, well, where's the Holy Spirit here? It only emphasizes Father and Son, right? And oftentimes when we read this kind of language, that's just how it was emphasized back then, between the Father and Son. But that doesn't negate that the Holy Spirit wasn't involved. He very much was involved, as we said earlier, and um, this was a Trinitarian plan, Okay, so another thing that we can have be problematic is when we read this is because of our finite language, we can think, okay, well, God is in this meeting between, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, and they had this kind of discussion and talk and had to come to terms and agreements and, and make bargains, and, and that's not ex- how it happened. Yeah, we might make covenants that way or sign contracts in that way here on earth, but we need to remember God isn't like us, and he is not subjected to time and space. So we can't say and look down the quarters of time and, or back and say, oh yeah, this is how it happened. So let's not read our own experiences here. This is a great mystery, but we can look at the numerous type, types of, of scriptures that refer to this and say, we know this happened. This was an eternal covenant and this was between the Godheads, but there's no succession of moments with God. Remember when we went to doctrine of God, Right? Um, we, we learn that he's not bound by time and space. And so this is before eternity, before time even existed. Now notice what the Father did. He chose and ordained the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his only begotten Son. So this is emphasized throughout um, the scriptures that this is his only Son, uh, his only begotten and uh, this doesn't mean that he came into existence, that there was one time there was only the Father, and then another time, then the Son came into existence later. No, the Son's always been there. Some people would say eternally begotten. Um, but uh, this just means it's, you know, his Son. Uh, it doesn't mean he was uh, birthed or anything like how we experience 
begottenness, I guess you could say. But he's always eternally been in the role of son. Now notice it's according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. So throughout this covenant, um, the father chose, the father ordained the son to do certain things. The son voluntarily, willingly agrees to the terms out of love for his father. Notice what the first one is, to be the mediator between God and man. What what does it mean to be a mediator? What does that mean? Go between. A go-between, okay. Yeah, and um, maybe... Why is there a need to go between? Levels of intelligence are so fast that you can't even describe it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, God's definitely higher than us for sure. What other reasons might we need? To be a neutral party when other people might be on different means. Yeah, so either different levels or different. yeah, different things that are happening. Uh huh. What else, Teresa? It's holiness. It's holiness. Enter into that presence without and go between. Yeah, good. So all those all those answers are, are right. And so if we think about it, in light of progressive revelation, what happened, right? In light of the fall, we are now sinners. We are rebels against God. And we can no longer be in God's presence, as Teresa said, because God is holy when we are not. We can't be in the presence of the Lord. And the Bible calls us, while we're outside of Christ and in our sin, the Bible calls us his enemies. Okay? And so we need a a party. Um, This is one who intervenes between opposing parties to bring about peace and provide reconciliation. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's mediating. He's our mediator. And usually when you have a mediator, you need one who can best represent both parties, right? So a mediator, for in this case, think, of, think about it, Jesus is the God-man. He's our perfect mediator, our perfect representative between God and man. And so he comes fully God, and he can represent God to us because he is God, right? He's deity, But because of the incarnation, he can now fully represent us. He knows what it's like to be like us. Uh, He is perfectly, fully man. So he is the perfect mediator to reconcile two opposing parties, but he can best represent each side. Okay. Now, in Philippians 2, we kind of see how he uh, took upon um, our party or our representation Um, In Philippians 2, it says, verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is how he became our mediator, our representative. He had to become like us in every way so that he could represent us. Right? And we know, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of how he represented us, but he had to um, take on the form of a servant, take on the form of humanity. 
He being born in the likeness of men. So now he could fully represent us perfectly to God the Father, though he was in the form of God too. And this boggles our mind, but we can say Jesus was chosen by God the Father to be our mediator. Why? Because he's the perfect uh, mediator to do so. He's the perfect party. Mm-hmm. He, he, is the, he is the one that negotiates our contract. He's the one that, that goes before us in such a way that it speaks to those that the one that's in charge mm-hmm. and takes that position. So he was always classified as my union friend. Yeah, that's good. That's what we are in union with Christ. Right. Amen. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Richard. First um, Peter 1 talks a little bit about how he provides this mediation as well. How did he reconcile the parties? If he's the one who, before time, according to the eternal covenant, uh, the covenant of redemption, um, remember the father elected a people for himself and then commissioned the son, go and redeem these people. Okay, well, how does he do that? First Peter 1, verse 18 says, Knowing you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Okay, so we're ransomed by the blood of Christ. Um, and through that, he provides reconciliation, right? There was hostility before uh, God and man, but Jesus comes and reconciles us by his work, right? By the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Notice, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the father appoints, he chooses, he appoints him for this. The son voluntarily agrees to be the mediator. Well, there's various ways in which he provides mediation. Um, and we're going to get into that next. The father appointed the son to hold a threefold office, which is prophet, priest, and king. Okay, so let's just think of these roles, and we can see if we were familiar with our Old Testament, uh, there were lots of prophet, priests, and kings throughout. But Christ is supposed to be the true and better and final prophet, priest, and king. All those were types and shadows pointing us, teaching us something that Christ would do, but Christ is the true embodiment of that. So let's just consider these offices. What is a prophet? What did a prophet do in the Old Testament? A messenger, okay. Teresa? Okay, yes, speaking God's word. What else do we know about prophets? What were the kind of, if we were to sum up a lot of their messages as far as dealing with the people, what would that look like? Yeah, they definitely said thrust as the Lord, right? So they were God's mouthpiece. They spoke God's words to the people. What were often some of those words? Okay, yeah. Things to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Good. Um, so yeah, they spoke God's word. Um, an example of this is Isaiah 1.4. Um, and what they did is, I've often called them covenant prosecutors. So what they would do is, they would come before the people. And they would say, remember God's word. Remember his law. Remember what he commanded you to do. And then he points out their failure. He indicts the people for their failure. He, call, he calls out their sin. And then he calls them to repentance, right? Um, and there's that continual proclamation of indictment, continual call for repentance, but there's also a, prom, a, a pronouncement of hope and forgiveness if they do do these things. But there's also a thing of judgment if they don't, right? So it's almost like he's, he's summing up the law again and saying, hey, Remember what you must do to honor the Lord, and there's consequences if you don't, and there's blessings if you do. So it's almost like he's, he's the covenant prosecutor to say, like a lawyer, to say, look, I'm representing God here. Here's what he told you. You're not doing this right, and as a result, you need to repent. And there's promises of forgiveness if you do for those who truly trust in um, the ways God provided um, these promises. And those who did, they would also pronounce true forgiveness, right? We think of in Isaiah, I believe, 44, where he says, comfort, comfort, my people, right? These are people who were persecuted, but in Isaiah 1-4, he calls them out for their sin, for failure to uh, break, for their failure to keep God's law, okay? So this is kind of what a prophet did. They were also anointed, right? They were anointed, um, and we, they, they were anointed in a way that says this is his office, but also uh, God is speaking through them. Okay, and Jesus, though, uh, here, it says the Father chose and appointed the Son to be a prophet for us. So in light of that Old Testament background picture, we see Jesus is the true and better prophet. He is the final prophet, um, and he has done, done for us all that these other prophets uh, must do or did. The difference is he came proclaiming the word of God, right? He didn't say, thrust says the Lord, but he said what? I say to you, because he is the Lord. He is God, right? So he came proclaiming the word of God, his very own word. He is the word, John 1, 1. He came into the world, why? Because of sin, because of people breaking the law of God, and he came to deal with their sin. And what did he do? He proclaimed, repent and believe. Repent and believe in him. Mark 1.5, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what else did he do? He proclaimed that if you do, there's pardon and forgiveness for sins. Um, So he is coming, pronouncing the same things, except for those who have faith in him, he truly grants repentance. He, He pronounces forgiveness for them. And so he comes as our true and better prophet. So Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So he's anointed. His spirit comes. He comes in the the Holy Spirit and he brings forth justice by proclaiming the law of God, calling them to repent, and then actually providing uh, the... uh, the, the, the verdict, right? But he took upon the verdict upon himself, as we'll see in his next role. 
So he's, he's the true prophet. He gives us the true words of God because he is the word of God. And it reminds us in Acts uh, 3.22, uh, when Peter's you know, prophesying, and he's talking about um, going back to the Jews, and he's saying, hey, remember when Moses said, um, after me there will be a prophet like me who I will raise up, and to him you'll listen? He says, that was Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus was the prophet, the greater prophet that Moses spoke of. It wasn't Joshua he was speaking of. It was ultimately Jesus. And so Jesus is the true and greater prophet who actually does come calling people to repentance, calling God's law holy for them to uphold that. He's the one who upholds it. And he pronounces an end to sin as well because he deals with it on the cross. He's our true and better prophet. What about priest? He's also chosen and appointed to be priest. What, was a, what would a priest do in the Old Testament? Cosman? Okay, yeah, go on behalf of people. Why was that necessary? What was, what was they, they doing? An interceder, sort of. Yeah, he would intercede for them. Um, let's think of Day of Atonement, right? What, what's happening on the Day of Atonement? Remember what happened there? You have a high priest. Once a year. High priest, once a year. Yeah, he offers sacrifice for the people, right? So he goes in, he's kind of like the mediator between God and the people. The problem is he's a sinner, right? He's still a sinner and he has to offer sacrifice for himself. And another thing, um, he had to do it every single year. A continual reminder that you're still a sinner. You still need forgiveness. You still need atonement. Um, They kept needing to happen. And what did he do? He was supposed to go on behalf of the people, after he gave sacrifices for his own sins, he would go on into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would actually wear um, these uh, badges, uh, uh, lack of a better word, I forgot what the Bible called it, but these uh, badges that had each of the names of the tribes of Israel. And it's because he was representing them. He was going into the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifice for the people of Israel for their sins, the Day of Atonement. The problem with it is they had to do it every year, and he couldn't stay in there very long, or else he would die, um, and it kept needing to happen. So it wasn't a final sacrifice that actually forgave sins. It, they had to do it every year. It was, it was a shadow of something greater to come. It was pointing to something better. And Jesus is the true and better prophet whom the Father chose and appointed. And what does he do? He comes who is truly holy, not sinful like the other prophet or priests were. He comes truly holy. He enters into the holy of holies, you could say. He offered up a true and better sacrifice. So once for all, he sacrificed himself. But he was the greatest substitute as well. Um, Let's turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. So a sacrifice needed to happen. Um, One, he had to come, if he was going to be our substitute, the sacrifice had to be like us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus comes as what? The sinless, spotless lamb. You think of Isaiah speaking of that lamb of God who will come. Isaiah 5, can someone read verse 5 to 10 for us? Isaiah 5, verse 5 to 10. 
Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him, being so Jesus is the true and better high priest. The author of Hebrews really hammers this. Um, one person said this, Christ as our mediator and high priest not only offered the sacrifice once for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the holy priest of old, Christ entered the holy place. But unlike the high priest, he entered to offer himself. He, had only, he only had to enter one time, for the blood he offered was his very own blood. And that's what was needed. And then you think of Hebrews 9, 9 verse 11. It says um, that these things have come, uh, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with, t- with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of bulls, and blood, blood of bull of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ash, ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, with, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the offering of goats, bulls, sprinkling of blood, all that was a picture of purification of the flesh, but that was a greater picture for what Christ would do and actually fully accomplished. So Jesus shows he's, he's our true and better once-for-all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated again. And as a result, you know, the preacher of the Hebrews would take that and says, so he's our sympathetic high priest, right? He's not this high and lofty high priest that, you know, you can never go to, that you can never talk to. He can sympathize with you because he was like you in every way, yet without sin. And so knowing that Jesus is our true and greater high priest, that should provide a lot of comfort. He's not there to provide condemnation anymore. Why? Because he took it all upon himself. And if you're resting in him, he is able to sympathize with you. He's, he's offered forgiveness, and it's once for all. So there's no more offer of sacrifice for sins to be offered anymore because Christ did it all. Anything else on priest? Hmm, Ellie? Yeah, and, and so the reason, so it talks about um, earlier in Hebrews 2 that uh, 
the tabernacle and the tent and everything was just a picture of heavenly realities. And so they were going in. You have these different levels, right? And so they were going into the most holy of holies. And you have the, a symbol of the presence of God. You had a symbol of the throne, all that kind of stuff. Symbol of cherubim. It's a reflection of heaven. And they're saying, and then Christ actually entered into the realities of what that represented. He actually went to the very presence of the Lord. He actually went to the throne room of heaven. He pleaded his blood. He offered his own self for the sacrifice of sins. And because of the resurrection, we know it was fully accepted. And so as a result, he sat down at the right hand, never having to um, repeat it anymore. He, He achieved the realities of that, which was just a picture. He was a fulfillment. Yeah, that was just a picture. And he actually went to the realities. Uh, I believe it's First Peter um, who talks about this. Um, let's see here. First Peter's standing out to me for some reason. So let's see. Might be wrong. Yeah, you want to read that for us? With the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he was foreordained for the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who through him believed in God, he raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so looking at that, also, um, just, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating just thinking about, yeah, he entered into these things not made of, you know, he didn't offer silver, gold, he didn't offer, you know, blood of a goat, but his own blood. Um, there's a verse, another verse I'm thinking of where it says he passed through the heavens. I think that's Hebrews as well. Um, and that's the idea. He didn't pass through curtains. He passed through the heavens straight to the presence of the Lord. And as a result, what happened at the end of the cross? The curtain was torn. So no longer do we have to go through a priest or anything like that. We, we go straight to Christ who, who paved the way for us by his perfect mediation and sacrifice. So now the curtain's torn. There's no longer their divisions. We have direct access to the Father. So, Cosman? But it was not only symbolic, right? Because the priests, you know, they used to buy something if, if they go in there unclean, they would die, right? And yeah. Would pull them out, right? Yeah, so they were, not only... yeah, there was very much a, a reality that God is in their midst, yeah. And, and it was, you know, obviously, you know, you have the Ark of the Covenant, this little box. You can't contain God in a box. But he told himself, he told them, my presence is with you, and this is just a representation of that. Um, and so, yeah, in a very real way, um, the presence of the Lord was there, and they had to take that very seriously, or else, um, yeah, they were, they were killed, and you would no longer hear the bells, so they would drag them out, yeah. And uh, that's why, you know, with the men we studied uh, in First Samuel, uh, the ark comes back, and 70 men die just because they looked at it, because they didn't follow through how God commanded uh, the ark to be done. It should have been covered. It should have been taken with poles. It should have been taken as holy, and he takes his holiness seriously. So, yeah. 
50,070. Yeah, so a lot of people. So take the holiness of God very seriously. Um, The next one is king. Now, let's think of Old Testament kings. What did they do? Sam? What's that? Um, Not to backtrack a little bit, how do do we see Christ as our priest and my identity with the order order of Melchizedek? Yeah, so Melchizedek is a uh, kind of a representation. There's not a lot spoken of him, but what we do know is he's before the Aaronic priesthood, before Aaron, right? You still had priests who were, in, who were serving God. And so there's this priest, but the reason he says after the order of Melchizedek is because we know he was also king of Salem. So he's a priest king, right? So he holds this multiple offices, but also uh, what the author of Hebrews would say is he had no beginning or end. And the reason is because, so it's, it's almost this picture of there's this eternal kind of king that's pictured in this earthly reality. Um, not saying he was like the pre-incarnate Christ or anything like that. Um, some people think that might be. But th- the thing is, there's just not a lot of description about him, and there's no rec- rec- uh, record of a beginning or end. Yet Abraham acknowledged him as a priest of God and went to him and worshipped him and paid him a tithe. And so... Jesus is after that order, not, not uh, after an order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, because there's no beginning or end for Jesus. So that's how I would take, take that. So it's a way to differentiate Jesus as not necessarily a type of the, uh, what do you call it, Aaronic? Aaron, yeah, like after the Aaron's, Aaron's line, yeah. Yeah. Way to differentiate between his priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. Yeah. Given in the old covenant. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Abraham, obviously, this came before Abraham or before Israel was actually a nation. You still had a priest who represented God. And I think that's the idea here, too, is you have Jesus who, before the foundations of the world, uh, was the representation of. God. Um, and so he comes as the greatest, you know, priest. So there's a lot there for Melchizedek that's pretty fascinating. Let's look at King real quick and we'll probably pause. Um, maybe we should pause now. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and pause now because I'm not going to finish in four minutes for King. Um, so we'll do part two of section or paragraph one. And uh, so if you have more questions on that Melchizedek or, you know, prophet or priest, um, we can talk more about that next time. So let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll get ready for service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and, and uh, we are just so thankful for the work of Christ. Uh, we're thankful that we can be in this privileged state where we can look back knowing all this has been accomplished and your word proclaims it. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, Christ's sacrifice was fully accepted, that he sat down a once-for-all sacrifice, and we who rest in him can have full assurance that we are forgiven. So, Lord, help us by the power of your Spirit to want to proclaim those truths to the, to the a lost and dying world, calling them to also repent and believe. For all who believe in him, there is forgiveness. We thank you Christ and, for Christ in his name. Amen.